Welcome to the Making Headway Podcast, a podcast for brain injury survivors by brain injury survivors, providing resources and camaraderie for anyone recovering from any type of brain injury, with your hosts, Aaron Martin and Mariah Morgan. Welcome to Making Headway Podcast. This is Aaron, And this is Mariah. And we're here today to tell you a little more about our show and to really start um, talking about our stories. And we felt that it was important to tell you a little more about ourselves before we jump into other stories because it has so much to do with why this podcast came into being. Aaron and I are two very good friends who happen to have sustained brain injuries within two years of one another. I think that's probably a rare thing that you get bonked on the head and you know someone else who's gone through something similar. We were lucky enough to have each other for support and have each other to talk to, and we're both in different places on our recovery journeys, but nonetheless, it's been a huge help to us, at least speaking for myself, and we know Mm -hmm. every brain injury is unique, and there will probably always be a time that you feel like you're in it alone because of that, so... We wanted to reach out to other brain injury survivors, let them know they're not alone, tell our stories, tell the stories of others, share resources and tips and information and advice from practitioners along the way. So that's how we came to be. Yeah, and we're really excited to take this journey with you guys. You know, just having gone through it, you know, Mariah had a traumatic brain injury, which we're going to get into in depth pretty soon here. I had a spontaneous subarachnoid hemorrhage, which is totally different from a traumatic brain injury, but still a brain injury. And, you know, the hospitals, they do a great job at caring for you acutely. And, you know, some of us get services on our way out the door from the hospital, others don't. So... We're really trying to reach out to the community on a whole and share the things that we've all learned and different things that were isolating and maybe you didn't know about um, so that we can normalize this for everybody. So Mariah, how about you tell us a little bit more about how you came to be a brain injury survivor? How did you suffer a traumatic brain injury? Sure. So I was living in downtown Portsmouth in my town in uh, November 2018. So it'll be two years next month, which is crazy. Mm -hmm. And at the time, my family was renovating our home. So we were living in an apartment temporarily downtown while our kitchen was being redone. And it made my commute to work fantastic. The one, one and a half block walk was lovely. (laughs) (laughs) for however brief it was. Um, So I set out on the morning of November 13th. Of course, it was the 13th. It's kind of a laugh, but uh, I can never never (laughs) remember that day. It was a drizzly morning, kind of gray. And I remember it was the day after Veterans Day. So here in New England, a lot of people have Veterans Day off and my office did. And I remember as I walked to work thinking, it's really quiet for the day after a holiday. You know, you'd think people would be buzzing about trying to get to work frantically, but it was quiet. And I got to a four-way intersection. Three of the ways have stop signs. One has a yield sign. I've walked... It's a really confusing intersection. It is a really confusing (laughs) intersection. If you don't live here and and drive it regularly, you wouldn't necessarily know what was going on. (laughs) But I do, and so I know where to look for traffic. And I stopped, looked both ways before even putting a toe in the crosswalk. There, A car had just passed through, but there was no other sign of traffic other than that. So I started to cross, and my memory gets 
spotty pretty quickly, but I remember out of the left eye, um, the corner of my eye, seeing an SUV heading toward a yield sign and thinking that it was far away enough that I wasn't going to need to worry about it, that I would be long gone before, before that driver got to me. Unfortunately, not the case. And the last thing that I remember was watching a fender hit my knee. And mm. as you know, Aaron, because you've heard my story many times, there were a lot of things that I learned after the fact that brought closure and sort of a 360 view of the entire incident. But at the time, it was it was kind of touch and go immediately for me. I, I don't remember a whole lot. I remember sitting on the side of the road with my boot off. I'm, and I, at the time, did not, for a long time, I did not know why that was the case. Um, mm. I remember someone sitting next to me, talking to me, but I had no idea who. I remember that person pulled me into the entryway to an office building because the rain got heavier and helped me call my husband. And beyond that, I don't really remember a whole lot until waking up in the hospital. And I remember being sort of out of whack, not entirely conscious. And it turned out it was because I'd been rushed into an ambulance. I had sort of that fight or flight instinct in the ambulance. I have no recollection and I'm a very nice person, I think in general, but I, yes, you but are. <laughs> apparently it's very common if you suffer a traumatic brain injury for your body to go into sort of like aggressive overload. And so the EMTs were trying to take care of me and get me to the hospital as quickly as possible. And I fought them all the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sorry to those EMTs out there. I think it's really common though with brain injuries yeah. that um, your behaviors <laughs> just aren't your own. Exactly. Yeah. Like, you're you're in survival mode. You become a different mm -hmm. person. Yeah. And they put me on a pretty high dose of meds and uh, I was in a medically induced coma for I think almost 24 hours. And during that time, I when they tell you that people in comas can have memories of the time. I do have a couple of very selective memories. Do you? Um, what do you remember? I, they're, they're all kind of terrifying in hindsight. <laughs> As I was experiencing them, I wasn't really processing them. It was, it, it was all like looking back on it where I was like, oh, this is awful. But I, mm -hmm. I remember waking up enough to hear my husband singing to me and rubbing my arm mm. in the hospital. And I could tell from the way he was singing that he was crying. And I have another recollection of opening my eyes and seeing my priest standing over me praying <laughs> and immediately closing my eyes and being like, I don't know what's going on. Right. And at this point, you didn't, I right? Did no you even clue. know you'd been hit by a car? Uh, Did you no. have any idea? I, in the moment, yeah. I was not processing. I was just sort of like yeah. taking in what I was experiencing, and then my brain was shutting off again. And then my, mm -hmm. my last coma memory was opening my eyes and seeing you and your husband, Troy. Um, and to our listeners, Troy and Aaron are really, really close family friends. And I remember seeing them sitting in the hospital with my husband. And I think we actually, I don't know if I said something or not, or if I just opened my eyes, but I remember seeing you there and then the lights going out again, basically. Yeah. So when I came to, it turned out I had a subdural hematoma. I had significant bleeding in my brain. On the scans, the neurologist showed us, basically, if the bleeding had progressed just a hair further and I mean a hair like the slightest amount further they would have had to open my skull up 
But I was really fortunate in that everything sort of started to recede after that. But I was in the hospital for four or five days and in intensive care for the majority of that. And left the hospital and didn't have a whole lot of instruction after that. You know, they just made sure I was going to live and they kind of turned me out. I mean, not like they didn't kick me in the butt or anything, but (laughs) but that's, I, I just remember getting out and being like, well, now what? There's so much more living to do and recovery to tackle. And I just felt unprepared really for it. There were, and I can recall, like you had, so you had the subdural hematoma, you had a skull fracture too, big old nasty bruise. Men nasty bruise. (laughs) You really hadn't been walking around that much. And then, you know, we all thought you go from, you know, when we, when we were called, when Nat called us, we kind of forced ourselves upon him (laughs) and we're like, no, you need support. Like, this is bad. I'm a nurse myself. So just at some of the things he was saying, I'm like, no, he's going to need someone else there to listen and help process all of this and like Mariah was on a ventilator when we got there to the emergency department she wasn't breathing for herself she was on propofol and fentanyl some big time drugs to keep her in that medically induced coma she had a neck collar on you know things didn't look great (laughs) and then four days later she's being released from the hospital suddenly just at home with my three-year-old suddenly (laughs) she's fine and okay we're just home now and I, I I was pretty shocked by that. I can't imagine what you were. What what did they tell you? Not much. They told me it was kind of a miracle. And I think anybody else who's been in a situation where you have enough doctors tell you it's a miracle you're alive, you do start to believe it, but it doesn't totally hit you, no pun intended. And I, it took me a long, long time to process all of it because it happened so quickly. And also there were a lot of lingering effects that I didn't feel prepared for. I was fortunate in that they thought that my speech might be impaired in some way. They thought that I might have to relearn some habits, but none of that really was the case. I did have a little bit of a struggle recalling some words in the very, very beginning, but it disappeared Mm -hmm. quickly. But for the most part afterward, I just felt like I was living in a fog or like in slow-mo, honestly. And there's nothing much you can do about that except rest and do your best to slow your life down and recover and I'm a parent so that's very hard and I was gonna say she had a two-year-old at the time was he two then yeah he was two he mm-hmm. yeah. yeah he was two and a half and, and <laughs> it's hard to rest yeah and I, I wasn't allowed to lift him for a while because they were very cautious of you know like not wanting to cause any issues with strain the only drug I was on leaving the hospital was Keppra because they were concerned that I might have seizures and if you haven't heard of Keppra it's an anti-seizure or anti-epilepsy drug don't recommend it not fun it has a lot of weird side effects anxiety being the one that caused me the most trouble and also is that something you felt and recognized or something someone mentioned to you actually at the hospital they did not tell me about it it was a visiting nurse who warned me about the side effect of anxiety and once she mentioned it it made me feel so sane because I was like oh it's not just a, a, well after a brain injury you have no idea what the cause of any feeling is really right <laughs> so it was, is it brain injury is it medicine yeah. is it what is it yeah so it was yeah. nice to hear that that was that was the the Keppra. And I was on that for two months afterward. And I had to ease off. That's one of those that you have to sort of ease yourself off of. So other than the Keppra, it was just kind of like rest, take care of yourself. You know, that's about it. And one of my big surprises along the way was a few weeks after being home, 
realizing that it hurt when I walked and that at the hospital they had done many brain scans, but they had not looked at the rest of my body, um, which doesn't make sense because when you've been hit by a car, you've also been slammed on the pavement. So I did also have fractured knee. I had vertigo um, that I still deal with to this day. But yeah, so in hindsight, you know, we live in a smaller town and some of the things that happened afterward uh, were really helpful in the processing of the event and bringing it sort of, I wouldn't call it entirely closure because I don't know if you ever get full closure after brain injury. I think like every day you're living part of the closure. But a couple things that were kind of helpful and interesting along the way. For one thing, the woman who sat next to me on the side of the road with my boot off and the woman, same woman who helped me call my husband after the accident, it turns out she is a chiropractor for the U.S. bobsled team, Olympic bobsled (laughs) team. And the coincidence, you can call it a coincidence if you want, you can call it whatever, but she happened to be the first person on the scene after I was hit by the car and she was in the car with her husband. She stopped the car, told her husband to call 911. She jumped out of the car, checked my pelvis, checked my my spine, grabbed two people walking by, helped move me out of the road. The reason my boot was off is she was looking at my legs to see what was going on there. She helped move me inside out of the rain to help call my husband. And then after they sent me off in the ambulance, she was not she didn't know who I was. (laughs) So she couldn't really get in touch. And because of, you know, even if she'd called the hospital, they wouldn't have been able to tell her anything uh, because of, you know, the legal implications. So my yeah, how'd you guys find each other? My business, I run a marketing agency and we sent out a newsletter after a couple months after the accident just to let people who were curious know that I was OK and that I was coming back to work and it was all going to be fine. It turns out she happened to be on our email newsletter list and she opened the newsletter, saw my picture and said, I think I know her and then read the blog post that I had written about the accident. And she immediately responded and said, I'm the I was there. (laughs) And so we met (laughs) many months afterward. And she told me the story of watching it all happen. She's the only person who had a firsthand account of it other than the person who hit me in his car and um hearing her say that I was in the crosswalk the car hit me that I slammed up on the hood of the car and then the driver hit his brakes and because of inertia I went flying forward and she told me how how many feet forward she thought I flew hearing that story was the first time despite hearing doctors say it was a miracle I was alive hearing that story was the first time where I was like okay, it's a miracle. I'm alive. (laughs) Yeah. So that was amazing. And we, yeah, to kind of add on to what Mariah uh, is saying, we had a friend that we mentioned the accident to just because we knew she would care and want to pray for Mariah as well. And um, she mentioned that she had a coworker that worked across the street and had actually taken pictures of the scene. That, you know, it was very traumatic for me to even see those. It was really hard And Troy and I actually sat on those pictures for a while before we even mentioned it to Mariah asking, you know, do you want to see them? And yeah, which was very um, kind of you, I have to say. So yeah, so seeing those pictures a month after the accident, and it was nice of you to give us the option not to see them. But it even though it is traumatic to look at it, because it's literally my body lying in the street with people around me, it 
helped me so much to see because you seeing how far my body had been thrown also helped me understand that it was significant, that it was pretty phenomenal that I'd recovered as quickly as I had, or I was recovering at the time it was in the process. But the fact that I was walking and talking and celebrating Christmas with my family is that was a lot. Yeah. How did you process all of that? I mean, it's so much to be told you're lucky to be alive. And then sometimes you don't feel so lucky because you feel like crap. So (laughs) much. And I, and I think because I had so few visible effects and you can Mm. define visible by the obvious or by sort of like the speech issues that sometimes can come to fruition because there were very few obvious lingering effects. I felt silly because mentally I was really struggling and I was like, okay, if I, if it's a miracle that I'm alive, why do I feel terrible? And I, I just was in a really dark place for a long time until one day I randomly saw a statistic about people who have sustained traumatic brain injuries and the rate of depression in brain injury survivors is incredibly high. And seeing that I was like, Oh, this makes so much more sense because, and I, it's not something I love to share, but I just, I'm a really positive person in general. I was not a positive person at that time. I was thinking things that I am ashamed to have crossed my mind in hindsight, but it was not me being me. It was depression. And I reached out to my priest who then referred me to a therapist. And I'm so grateful that the chain of events took me to therapy because not only did I pull out of that dark place fairly quickly, but I also ended up as a result dealing with a lot of things I'd swept under the rug in my life for a long, long time. But in terms of recovering mentally, that threw me for a loop entirely. I I just did not expect that to be a part of the process. You think about the physical, you think about, you know, your speech, your movement, your, all of those things, but you don't think about your mental health necessarily. And I just was in a tough spot. And And I think that I'm hearing that as a common theme among survivors through social media and just different people I've talked to that, you know, it's really obvious, you know, the people that need to go to rehab after because they need something physical, Mm -hmm. they need help swallowing, they need to learn how to talk again, they need to learn how to walk again. But for those of us that have either gotten through that phase of recovery or we're fortunate enough to not need it. There's not a lot out there that's supporting the fact that, yeah, you're going to be depressed afterwards. Mm -hmm. That's a side effect. You might have behavioral changes. You might not think the way you're supposed to. Mm -hmm. You might feel really foggy and be really tired, but you're thinking, well, I should just be lucky. Someone told me I'm lucky to be alive. I should be grateful. And you feel invalidated. Like you shouldn't feel these things. Mm -hmm. And it's so such a common part. Yeah. And I think it's, I'm also an overachiever admittedly. And so not being at my usual capacity was really tough, but also depression is something you often have to self-identify. Like sometimes Mm -hmm. people notice it and tell you other times you have to be the one to pick up on it, recognize it and say it out loud. And there's so Mm -hmm. much stigma attached to that, that I think a lot of people try to cover it up. And I I certainly Mm -hmm. was struggling with that myself until I started thinking really bad things and that's when I was like, this is not me. So to anyone who is recovering from a brain injury and they feel like they're not themselves mentally, you're not alone. (laughs) It is a fairly normal thing and there are 
is help out there. Find a therapist. It is it will do unbelievable yeah. good for you. But for me, I was grappling with trying to I've always thought that things happen in my life for a reason. But when you get hit by a car, trying to explain why that would happen is a really hard thing. So, and this is not a podcast about religion in any way. I happen to be a religious person, but I was grappling with if there's a God, why would a God allow something like this to happen to me? Mm -hmm. And I think the learning from it is that you don't necessarily know the reason something happens immediately after it happens. And I still do believe everything happens for a reason. If you don't, I totally respect that. But for me, it took a long time to see the lesson in the accident and the good to come from it. And I wouldn't have expected to say this ever, but I'm actually, if you said, would you choose to delete that from your life? Would you choose to cross the street somewhere else on that day if you could go back? The answer is no for me because I, I learned so much. I'm a different and better person for it. And so for me right now, today, that is the reason that it happened. You know, maybe when I'm 80, mm -hmm. God willing, I'll get there. Uh, the reason will feel different or be something different. But it, it, that, it just was a struggle to like point at it and say why constantly. Yeah. So. And you mentioned that it caused you to kind of address some areas of your life that were maybe under the rug and things that maybe you would have never addressed. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's where I found benefit in having had a brain injury too, because it brings to light all these things that you no longer have the energy to cover up anymore. Exactly. Um, when you have cognitive fatigue, that's pretty much the more you use your brain, the more tired it gets. So it's really hard to keep all those barriers in place that are holding things in their little pockets. And you really need to address it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a lot of the work of recovery that at least the two of us have been on at the stages that we're in. And it's okay. It's a good thing to address and to try to figure things out. And we have these new leases on life, mm -hmm. so let's use them. Yeah. The only thing we can do is, you know, affect our own outlook and attitude. We can't change the circumstances that happen, but we can change how we handle exactly. it. Exactly. And it's not an easy thing, but sometimes those tough things are the things that bring about the most positive changes. Mm -hmm. So I am grateful for it in so many ways. And I, I would say in terms of other recovery items of note, CBD actually played a really big role in my recovery. I'm not a medical professional, so I can't say for sure that's the reason, but I used it topically on this insane bruise I had on my neck and disappeared so quickly. But also it helped with the anxiety I was dealing with as a result of the Keppra. Um, and also, you know, there's not a ton of research out there yet. Hopefully there will be more, but it, it is an anti-inflammatory. And so there, I'm sure a doctor might have something to say about, you know, inflammation in the brain and what effect that might have had. But that was a huge help to me in the process. Or maybe it was a placebo. I have no idea. But hopefully <laughs> we'll have an episode down the road to talk about CBD and some of the research that is out there on it. But that was a help. And then I would say having a partner who was an incredible advocate for me in the hospital is a help. And we've talked about this a million times, Aaron, but like, when you are dealing with a brain injury and you're in the hospital and you have doctors talking at you constantly, your ability to 
wrap your brain around, no pun intended, what they're saying to you <laughs> is quite limited. And yeah. I was incredibly grateful to have Nat, my husband, who was able to stick up for me when he felt like things weren't right and write things down and process things because I really don't have a whole lot of memory about of what was said to me by doctors in the hospital. I, I don't really remember... F- faces of people I don't rem- I mean my husband will mention things that happened in the hospital I'm like I have no idea what you're talking about <laughs> but that's yeah, so important to have an advocate yes because our memories are affected mm-hmm. our you know it, you need it yes you just need help yep whoever that is to make sure you have someone to stick up for you and to remember that doctors do their best hospitals do their best but they don't necessarily remember everything I mean like I said I left the hospital with plenty of brain scans, but they didn't check the rest of my body and I had fractured Mm -hmm. knees. And, you know, so if you feel like something's not right, follow your gut and say something about it. The sooner, the better. And they don't know us. Mm -hmm. Like they don't know what our cognitive baselines are. They don't know how we'd normally behave. You know, what's, what's normal for us may not be normal for somebody else. So you, it really does take a certain level of self advocate advocacy, but also, support system advocacy, because they're the ones seeing what you're going through and knowing that you're different and you recognize that you're different. So you have to tell someone, Exactly, you have to speak up. Yeah. And I, I did have visiting nurses after the accident at home, but they sort of ran me through a battery of tests, decided my brain was functioning above, you know, where it was supposed to be and let me go. But I still felt like things weren't right. And we've talked about this, Aaron, quite a bit, but they don't know your baseline. So they didn't know me pre-accident. They didn't know, you know, what it was like to talk to me normally or be able to, they could never recognize that a conversation with me wasn't what it once was. So even though my test scores were above where they should be, they weren't where they were pre-accident. And so I was kind of left on my own to deal with that. And I don't do a great job with (laughs) self-care. I own a business. I'm a parent. I'm tired a lot anyway, but learning to be kind to yourself and I'm still learning it and I'm still constantly having to remind myself and listen to my husband constantly remind me, but, but I, I'm not great at self-care and learning when to say it's okay that I'm not okay right now or forgive myself Mm -hmm. for mistakes or sit down and rest when it's clear that the brain fog was taking over. Um, that all was a, a tough one. And we've talked about my realization that I'm not a yogi. I like yoga a lot, but, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I realized in the process of brain injury recovery that pre-brain injury, because I'm a type A overachiever, like I would go to yoga classes and look around at the people around me and be like, oh, well, they did the the add-on exercise. So I'm going to compete with them or that that person can do a headstand. I'm going to try and do that. <laughs> competitive yoga. Competitive <laughs> yoga. That's not how yoga is supposed to be for the right. record. I just like, that's my personality and I don't mean to be that way. Post-brain injury, I, my approach to yoga is entirely different. I have I'm not perfect, but I've learned how to be in the place that I am a lot better. So there's no competition to yoga for me anymore. When the, when the yoga instructor says, if you need to go to child's pose to rest, go to child's pose to rest, then I listen. Whereas pre, pre-accident, I never, I would be like, I'm not 
going to child's pose, but now I have the ability to scan my body, scan my mind and say, okay, I do need to rest today instead of pushing myself to do whatever bizarre pose the person who goes to yoga every day and is sitting next to me right. is doing. So and I know a big thing that I've seen um, you go through and learn through this is just being more open and vulnerable. You know, I used to think of Mariah and I still do, but I used to think of you as like the superhuman, like this girl's got it all. She has it all put together. Everything's gone perfectly her whole life. But now you're more open and sharing and it makes it easier to relate and be like, yes, she did have this challenge and she was over able to overcome. And it that vulnerability is just so important, I think. And I think it's made us come closer together. Absolutely. A hundred percent. And I, I think... That's a lot of how I was raised is not letting people yep. see the cracks in your exterior. Me too. Um, not letting <laughs> people know when you've achieved something, but the journey was not pretty. Making it, dressing it up basically for the public. And at this point right. in my life, the accident put a lot in perspective and realizing how hard recovery was for me and that others must be going through that and that the more you can share your vulnerability, the more comfort you might bring to someone else who's going through a tough time. And also, I'm too tired. My brain is too tired to dress right. things up for the public at this point. You know, I would rather, you know, share the good, the bad and the ugly and just be me. And I mean, the very sort of obvious lesson in it is perspective and realizing yeah. that there is a lot of stuff that does not matter in your life and yep. um, your clothes, your home, you know, what people see of you, your appearance, it, it's great, but what really matters and it's the people you love. Yeah. And so when things go wrong at this point, my husband and I often look at each other and say, you know, we got through that year. We can get through just mm -hmm. about anything as long as we have each other and, and mm -hmm. our family and it's not worth getting in the mire. So, right. Yeah. It brings forth an authenticity that I think, you know, the whole reason we wanted to have this show was to have authentic, genuine conversations about what it's like to be in these places and to overcome and being open and being vulnerable and having our relationships at the forefront are the most important things. And we want everyone to feel that there's a place you can go for support and be able to support each other. Cause we all understand now, like we've been through this, we almost died and it just shakes up your life. Exactly. So yeah, we just keep on keeping on. Right. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for sharing Mariah. Yeah. Was there any other lessons or anything else that we didn't touch on that you wanted to make sure I think, we brought up? I think that covers it, but it's worth reiterating the mental health piece of this is so important. Mm -hmm. And if you are feeling like you're going through something similar, please know you're not alone. Please know there are people you can reach out to. In the COVID world, mental health resources are all online at this point. Mm -hmm. So there are so many options. Don't feel like you are at a dead end. It's not a dead end. You've got a place to go. So It's okay to not be okay. It's okay to not be okay. We all need help. And you can, <laughs> can heal. So Absolutely. Yeah. And if you want to learn more about Making Headway Podcasts, please follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Making Headway Podcasts. We also have a website. It's beautiful. Mariah designed it. It's www.makingheadwaypodcast.com. 
We're available on all the um, major platforms, Apple, Google, Amazon, Stitcher. So please, if you're liking what you're hearing, give us a review and reach out to us in any way that you want. We're happy to answer questions and get ideas for future show topics that you might want. Thanks for being on the journey with us. Bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us on the Making Headway Podcast. For more information and show notes, visit makingheadwaypodcast.com. Subscribe to the podcast on your favorite platform and leave us a review. Check us out at Making Headway Podcast on Facebook and Instagram and share with your friends. Catch you next time. All topics are intended to be used for educational and entertainment purposes only. The podcast is not to be used as a substitute for medical advice. Always consult with your healthcare provider for any issues or treatment considerations you may have. For our full legal terms, please see our website at makingheadwaypodcast.com.